I want to ask you a question. When we look around the world in our lives, what do we see that will last? What's going to really last? And what do we just assume is permanent because uh, it's sort of always there? Uh, We can think about all different aspects of life uh, when we think about this question of what's going to last. I mean, think about just politically for a second. You know, the, the, the great empires of history Uh, Nations that seemed invincible when they were in existence. Citizens uh, of which they they just couldn't even imagine these nations ever coming to an end. I mean, the Egyptians build these pyramids, these monuments to their power and their their, uh, belief that their military and cultural power would just go on forever. And now these pyramids are tourist attractions and the subject of alien conspiracy theory documentaries. The Greeks thought their philosophy and innovative form of government would be sort of peak human flourishing. And now you go to Athens and it's beautiful, but you're paying to walk through crumbling theaters and burned out temples. The Roman Empire, with all of its power, toppled. The Mayan Empire, overgrown by jungles. You can go through all of the powers through history. The French under Napoleon, the Third Reich, the Soviets, the Galactic Empire. I mean, they had Darth Vader and a laser that could blow up planets. Didn't work out for them either. All right, my point about these real powers is that they built these massive monuments to their invincibility. Their leaders had godlike status, and yet they all fell. In fact, our world is full of things that seem invincible, that are in fact not. And we experience this in other areas of our life. There are undefeated teams that lose and then decline. There are companies that seem unstoppable that begin to fail. We've seen this in the news recently with Sears and Toys R Us. We're even now seeing uh, modern tech companies like Facebook and Apple show that they're at least fallible. And then, you know, species go extinct. This past year, the last male northern white rhino died. So that species is about to go extinct. Famous actors stop being famous. Pop stars stop writing hits. Money, fame, power, winning, success, it does not last. And sometimes this reality is more painful and more personal. A relationship ends that you couldn't imagine ending. It seemed impervious and now it's a thing of the past. A job that seemed totally secure, and all of a sudden it's not. Or you lose a loved one whose death you could not imagine, and yet you've had to say goodbye. We are surrounded by illusions of permanence and invincibility. I mean, if the best, most powerful achievements that humans have ever created aren't going to last, it begs the question. This is the question we're going to drive at today. Uh, in this message is, what will last? What will last? And related to that, kind of a question behind that, is if we know what will last, how should our lives change because of that? It's interesting, Jesus had a conversation about this exact question uh, with his disciples. So we're going to look today at that conversation he had, and we're going to learn a lot from it. So if you uh, brought your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open up to Matthew 25, Verse 31, Um, if you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's probably about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. 
If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to look at a hard copy, uh, we have some on the tables. We'd be happy for you to take one of those. You can actually take that home if you don't own a Bible, though we will put the scripture uh, on the screens up here as we usually do. Um, But before we dive into the Gospel of Matthew, I just want to briefly pray and ask God to prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. We, We give you our minds. We give you our hearts. And we acknowledge, Holy Spirit, that we come in here with stresses and questions and all kinds of things on our minds. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would clear that stuff aside and that we would just hear your voice and that we would walk out changed in the ways you want us to be changed. Lord, speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I told you to turn to Matthew 25, 31, and that is the passage that we're going to kind of zero in on in a moment. But before we get there, we've got to back up a little bit to Matthew uh, 24 so that we can understand really what Matthew 25 is getting at. Um, You don't need to turn to Matthew 24. I'll put these few verses up on the screen for you. Uh, But I want to set the scene before we jump into Matthew 24. Jesus had just arrived in Jerusalem, his triumphal entry Uh, Palm Sunday, we celebrate this, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to um, the excitement of the people that he's there. They think he's going to be their deliverer, their Messiah, which of course he was, but not the kind of Messiah they thought he was going to be. They think he's going to be a military leader, a political uh, leader, that he's going to acquire power for himself in the traditional sense. And of course, that's not what happened, but that's what they're looking for. And so in the midst of this fervor, of his arrival in Jerusalem toward the end of his life, he has this remarkable exchange with his disciples. Uh, They had spent some time when they arrived in Jerusalem in the Jerusalem temple. This is what the temple looked like in the first century. It was this gigantic structure. Um, Thousands of people were always uh, in the courtyards. It was just the center of life uh, in Jerusalem. And and he and his disciples had, had been there. And his disciples were just sort of in awe of this structure, and they comment on this to Jesus, on its, its magnificence. And so in, in Matthew 24, 1, this is what happens. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I mean, that temple was like the crown jewel of architecture in that part of the world, a symbol of power. The disciples are marveling at it. And Jesus says, guess what? Even this isn't going to last. Which just would not have computed. You're, you know, you're one of his disciples and you're a Jewish person. You're like, what? How can you say that? You may remember on another occasion, Jesus went into that temple and he saw that people were profiting off of it and they turned it into a business and he didn't like that. And so he drives all these money changers out of the temple and people are like, who is this guy from Galilee who's running all these people out of the temple? What right do you have to do this? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you why, uh, what the proof is that I have the right to do this. I'm going to tear down this temple and in three days build it back up. And the people hearing this just sort of like, What? Like, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? And, of course, Jesus was speaking metaphorically about his body, it tells us, that his body would be raised in three days. But their response, when they thought he was speaking literally, shows just how inconceivable it was that this temple could ever be destroyed. It was like, what is he even talking about? It seemed invincible. But Jesus' words came true about not one stone being left on another. Um, You may not know this, about four decades after Jesus' life, um, 
the Jews rose up in rebellion against the Romans. They'd had enough. And um, the Romans don't put up with that. And so in the year 70 AD, in one of the most widely documented events in the ancient world, the Romans brought their legions to Jerusalem and just obliterated it and just obliterated the temple. And um, it was just this unimaginable moment. Here's a, some pictures. This is an artist's uh, imagination of what that looked like based on historical sources. Um, again, this is about 40 years after Jesus' life. The Romans um, c- commemorated this event. They celebrated it on their coins, Judea Copta, they, uh, a whole uh, series of coins celebrating, yay, remember that time we destroyed the Jews? And then if you go to Rome, they memorialize it in places too of this, this triumphant moment of destroying Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. So imagine you rewind back to the time of Jesus' life and he tells the disciples, this temple is going to be destroyed. They're thinking, if that's not going to last, what is going to last? How is this all going to play out, the rest of history? What does this look like? And so when you read the rest of chapter 24, that's what Jesus talks about. He he talks about the end times. Here's what it's going to look like when I come back at the end of history and and bring in my kingdom in its fullness. That's what chapter 24 is all about, the end of history. And I want you to keep that in mind because that's the backdrop conversation of all of Matthew 25. So let's look at the first couple verses of Matthew 25. Uh, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is talking, and he says, at that time, and by that time, he means the end, the end of history, when he returns. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. Okay, so I'm I'm not going to keep reading there, but he's telling a parable. He starts this parable uh, that is illustrating what it's going to be like when his kingdom arrives in its fullness, And it's this parable about these 10 young women who were going to be a part of a bridal procession. And uh, they're going to take part in this. Some of them were wise and brought enough oil for their lamps. Others were foolish, did not have enough lamps for the celebration. And so when the groom arrived and the celebration's about to start, they were not ready. And so the parable is about being prepared, living a life that, that is ready for Christ's return. He tells another parable right after that that's basically the same point. Jesus is saying when he ushers in his eternal, perfect kingdom, our lives should reflect not just a saving faith in Christ, but our lives should be full of actions that align with his kingdom priorities. We've been demonstrating with our lives that our faith is real. That's essentially the picture Jesus is painting. And then he begins to elaborate on this in verse 31, which is where I had you turn. So I'm going to have you highlight a couple of things here if you're taking notes. This is where we're really going to focus these next few verses here. So Matthew 25, 31. Again, Jesus is talking about the end. Remember, the end of history. He says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Highlight that, sheep and goats, those two words. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he, the Lord, will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, and take, and then I would highlight the rest of this, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So Jesus is saying there will be this separation of humanity, those who knew him and those who didn't know him. And the only way into God's kingdom is to know Christ. And he's saying what's going to happen in that moment is he's going to say to those who know him, uh, his sheep, as the metaphor is in this parable, he's going to say, here it is, your inheritance that I have been preparing for you since the creation of the world. My kingdom, it is here. Welcome. I want you to enjoy this. And then he goes on to make this list. You know, you, you uh, gave me food. You gave me something to drink. You invited me in. Now, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Let's time out there for a second. That's a strange thought. Does God need to be fed? Does he need us to take care of him? No. God is all-powerful. He is eternal. He is self-sufficient. Why is Jesus saying this? He continues and he explains to us, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, and I would highlight the rest of this if you're taking notes, whatever you did, For one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, Jesus is not saying that our good works save us, our faith saves us, our faith in Christ. Jesus is talking about the fruit that we bear, Christ-like actions that grow out of a heart that loves God and yields to God. But this is the simple lesson that Jesus is making with this, this statement here. The simple point of this passage is to serve those in need is to serve God. To serve those in need is to serve God. That's what Jesus is saying. He was saying, when you took care of the suffering, I felt the same about it as if you'd done it for me. It meant just as much to me. To serve those in need is to serve God. It is to embrace kingdom values. Serving those in need is something that will last. Kingdom values that go on into eternity. Serving those in need lasts. Jesus spoke about this all the time. This is not an isolated passage in Matthew 25. You know, when Jesus went public with his ministry, you, some of you may know he was in his hometown of Nazareth and he said, you know, hey, here I am. I'm about to start my ministry. And he announced himself and he quoted this passage from Isaiah to characterize what his ministry was about. And we read this in Luke 4. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The poor, the prisoners, the sick, the oppressed, Jesus' message would be good news for them. Because his people, the church, transformed by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to help them. They're going to go out and serve and meet needs. Christ, the head of the church, is going to lead his people to serve those who are in need. Which is a taste 
of God's kingdom now in a lost and broken world. We don't serve those in need to impress God or just be philanthropists or, you know, be moral people or try to get on God's good side. That's putting the the cart before the horse. When we give our lives to Christ, Scripture tells us we are a new creation. We have a completely new purpose in life, a mission in life. We are now ambassadors to the world, ambassadors with changed hearts. And taking care of those in need springs out of our changed hearts. It is external evidence of a prior internal transformation that has happened in us because of what Jesus did. You know, everything we do in our lives of faith and every motive we have for what we do always goes back to what God has already done for us. Our actions are a response to what he has done. And that idea is woven throughout all of Scripture. This is not a new idea that Jesus brought with his teaching. Um, I want to give you just one more scriptural example. I find this one especially powerful and clear that really drives this point home. Uh, Some of you may know this. In the Old Testament period, uh, God had a kind of unusual command for his people um, to be careless farmers. I don't know if you know this. It was an agricultural economy. People's wealth was in their land and in their crops. Their money was their crops. And and God said, uh, I don't want you to harvest every scrap of your field. Most of it, yeah, but not all of it. And, and, and he explains why. Because, you know, God never gives us rules without a reason. He's not just making rules because he wants to make rules. There's a reason. And I love this passage because it explains why the ancient Israelites were supposed to be careless farmers, the rule, and then he gives the reason. So let's look at it. Deuteronomy 24, 19. God said this, When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not, do not go back to get it. Leave it. For the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So he gives the rule, don't harvest every bit of your crop. And he gives two reasons. The first reason is there are immigrants and orphans and widows in your midst and they need to eat. I want to provide for them through you. So that's the first reason. But did you notice the second reason? It's also about our own heart. He said, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember everything I did for you. I rescued you. I love you. I took care of you. And I want you to remember that. And by being generous in this way and taking care of people in need, you're going to remember your own need and the needs that I meet for you. God was saying taking care of those in need not only helps them, it speaks to your heart and reminds you of how much you need him and how much we've already been given. Now look, there's some tension in this passage, it's not easy to embrace this because we do live in a culture that, generally speaking, says, hey, if you earn it, it is yours to keep. You keep everything. Not so in God's kingdom. That's not how it's designed. God says, through your material generosity and serving those in need, God says, I'm going to simultaneously help them and help you by dethroning the things in your life that won't last and that are ruling you. 
I'm going to unseat them. I'm going to loosen their grip on your heart by you being generous and taking care of those in need. Serving others makes sure your things don't rule you and that you remember what God has done for you. So I want to just quickly sum up a few of the key ideas we've already kind of hit on um, in the few texts that we've looked at. To serve those in need is to, the first one is to serve God. I said this earlier, to serve those in need is to serve God. Jesus said that. If you've done it for them, it's as if you did it for me. I feel that way about it. To serve those in need is to serve God. To serve those in need is to be about his kingdom priorities. It's to say, this is important to God, and I want my life to be reflective of that. And finally, to serve those in need is to invest in your own relationship with God. This is what it was talking about in Deuteronomy and other places. By giving generously and serving those in need, it deepens your relationship with God. It reminds you of your own need. And it it, it removes those things in your life that you might be trusting in instead of God. So we started out with this question, what will last? It's hard to answer that concisely, (laughs) but I think I got as close as I think we can get in answering it. And, And I think the answer is this, what will last? The Lord and his kingdom. The Lord and his kingdom. His kingdom obviously includes his creation. It includes his people, his church. That's what will last. You're thinking eternally, the Lord and his kingdom. So what matters now, if that's true? What can we invest our time and energy in right now for eternal significance, if that's what lasts? Well, I think Jesus and the rest of scriptures have given us some clarity. Our relationship with the Lord is of the highest importance. That gives us uh, life in the first place and gives our lives a completely new perspective, a kingdom lens on everything we do, the more we invest in our relationship with the Lord. And we have to ask God to shape our hearts to align with his. You see, he wants his kingdom to grow and flourish, and it is, but it's going to continue growing and flourishing, and we should want that too. And we should want our purposes and our values in our life, the way we spend our time and our energy, to increasingly grow in alignment with his kingdom values and priorities. But we have to ask God to do that in us. We can't just sort of work hard to make that true. There are other important things in our life, of course, our families, our jobs, our aspirations. God loves us. He knows those things. Those things are good. Those aren't bad things, but they're not the most important thing. And so keeping in mind the most important thing, the Lord, our relationship with him, his priorities, and living out kingdom priorities, that is meant to be our main focus in life, our primary lens. And by the way, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all this other stuff's going to be added to you. All the other things in life that are important and that are joyful and that are priorities— That stuff is going to, you can trust the Lord with those things, but seek first his kingdom. He doesn't guarantee us an easy life, but he does guarantee his presence and that he'll guide us through whatever comes our way. Earlier we prayed about Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, you're with me. It's not saying there's no dark valleys. It's saying when you encounter them, the Lord is with you in the valley. Seek first the kingdom, Jesus said. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why we focus so heavily at Real Hope on outreach, local and global outreach, is 
uh, not only that we're commanded to do that, uh, that's the purpose of the church, um, but it helps to jar us out of any tendency we might have to kind of look inwardly and stay there and kind of hoard things for ourselves, both as individuals and as a church family. The more we can think outwardly, the more we're going to find that we're aligning ourselves with God's heart and his values. You know, our mission statement, we say this a lot around here, we exist to join Jesus in his mission to transform lives. It's his mission. It's his kingdom. We don't make up the message. We, we didn't get creative and try to come up with some uh, new idea of what church is. Jesus told us what the church is, what the mission is, and its transformation of lives eternally, but also in the here and now. He wants to use us, the church, to serve and to help people. So we want to join Jesus in his kingdom work. We want to be a part of that as a church. And so tomorrow, uh, this is alluded to earlier, we are kicking off uh, the Matthew 25 challenge in partnership with World Vision. If you don't know anything about World Vision, they're an amazing uh, organization. And um, this Matthew 25 challenge, we, we did it last year when World Vision was just kind of piloting this. Um, it is an amazing opportunity to walk through an experience this week that will shape your heart. It absolutely will shape your heart and begin to align it in some key areas with the Lord's heart of serving those in need. Um, you'll help others and you will grow in your own relationship with the Lord. Jenny's going to speak more in a moment about what this looks like, the logistics, but I would just encourage you uh, to participate in this and also tell your friends and family. They don't have to come to Real Hope to be a part of this. Um, in fact, I'd love it if our church was sort of a rally point for all of our communities and, and friendship and family networks to all sort of participate with this. It's, they make it really easy and it's very meaningful. It is so worth your time. Uh, so just in closing, there are many things in this world that seem permanent and seem invincible, but they're actually not going to last so let's not spend our lives building monuments to those things that ultimately will crumble. We are called to something deeper, more beautiful, eternal. We are invited into a relationship with God Almighty who loves us beyond comprehension and we are called into his kingdom work alongside of him. And we can live this life now. This is not like, well, one day when we get to heaven, we'll see what the kingdom is like. Yes, that will be different. That will be the fullness of God's kingdom apart from any sin and brokenness in the world. But we are meant to experience regular glimpses and tastes of his kingdom now. And we are meant to bring that about for other people. We don't have to wait for heaven. We can, we can experience those joys now, even in a world with sin and death and brokenness and heartache. We can and should live out kingdom values now and as a result, enjoy an ever-deepening relationship with God. That is our call.